session with Dr. Farid Holaku. afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolokli, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my soundcloud page and podcasts on itunes and spotify again our studio number 310-441-0555 so the book of the week for this week is capital and ideology by thomas piketty Uh, capital and ideology by thomas piketty it's a follow-up to a book he wrote uh, 2013, I think it was first in French and then published 2014 in the United States Capitol in the 21st century. And a very interesting book looking at the history of economic systems, but also his focus is on the economics of inequality. And uh, this book, I wanted to read a book from him after seeing him talk a few times, but the length of his books are, are quite um, large. So the first book he wrote is over 800 pages, or not, that's not his first book, but The Capital in 21st Century. This one, Capital and Ideology, is uh, over 1,000 pages, about 1,064, uh, something around that. And so I actually picked this book for this week because Monday it is Memorial Day, a national holiday here in the United States, so I won't be doing a live show. So I figured I'd get two extra days for this book um, to read it by next Wednesday's show and you know I actually wanted to start off the show talking about this uh, this book and this kind of goal and plan because it's brought up a lot of things for me already so um, I started the book really yesterday Tuesday and I was excited and nervous about reading this book excited because I was very interested in the topic, interested in what I knew about uh, him and the work he does, which is not so much, but from what I did know, uh, and also excited because I knew it would be a challenge. Uh, a thousand pages is obviously quite a lot. Most of the books I read each week are around in the 250 to 300 uh, range. So this is more than three times that, or four times really, the most typical books that I'm reading. And I didn't know how dense it would be, but starting it yesterday, it really is very dense, um, very detailed. He's going through the history with a lot of terms that I don't know, so sometimes I'm looking them up. And it's been quite slow. So yesterday I read about uh, something like 80 pages, but it took me many, many hours. And so uh, the reason why I wanted to share this is that it reminded me of goals and of course it's always good to have goals but especially having goals that get us excited that make us interested uh, about reaching the end of that goal so i think it's always a good idea to have goals especially right now during the quarantine i think of course many things in our lives have been put on hold life has felt to slow down in a lot of ways for a lot of people and a lot of things we used to do we're not doing anymore and this can have 
big impacts on our overall mental health, how good you're feeling, how productive you're feeling, how uh, your self-efficacy or how um, productive, sometimes in the more traditional senses, but pr productivity can mean lots of things. Sometimes we get too focused on productivity. Uh, but it just made me realize there's so much we get from setting goals because already this week, I'm very excited about this. I'm also nervous about it, which can be a part of goals, uh, depending on how much it brings up for us that are important for us to achieve and difficult for us to achieve or have a challenge. And that made me realize something quite interesting about this process and something that we can all try to create for ourselves. So to have a, a goal that we're working towards can feel really good. Of course, achieving the goal feels very good and has different feelings towards it. But we actually realize that striving for a goal, that struggle and that challenge, it, it's hard to say it's better than but sometimes even people feel that that part is better than actually getting to the destination. This could be related to things like how dopamine works and how our brains are structured that it's pushing us towards working towards something and it makes us feel good about getting close to getting to that goal uh, i don't know enough about the dopamine and the centers and how things work but my understanding of it and people who study neuroscience could explain that much better but we do get uh, an excitement or a good feeling from going towards a goal and so many people have experienced this that they think about reaching a goal and when they get there it might feel a little bit anticlimactic it'll feel good and they'll look back at the struggle towards getting to that goal as something quite beautiful and meaningful and something that makes them feel really good, makes them feel fulfilled, makes them feel content. When I think back to being in undergraduate studies at UCLA, I remember studying really hard at the Powell Library, oftentimes until sunrise before exams. And when I look back on it now, even then it was obviously stressful and a struggle, but when I look back on it now, I have very fond memories of it. Now, sometimes we could think those fond memories come from some kind of a Stockholm syndrome or the ways that we can rewrite the narrative of our, of our past to see something negative in somehow a positive way or a cognitive dissonance where we feel like if I went through so much pain and struggle, it had to have been worth it. So we might think of uh, reshaping the way we look at what happened. And in a more extreme negative way, we even see children who, for example, have been abused by their parents at times when they get older, they will think of back on that abuse in a positive way. They'll try to, in essence, reshape the narrative to think, you know what, actually that helped me grow as a human being and made me a better person. So I'm actually grateful to my fa father or my mother for being abusive. And really we can interpret that as realizing that this is just a way to try to feel better about what happened, to not think of our parents in such a negative light, to not feel so bad about what happened back then, and probably isn't a genuine reflection of what happened. But nonetheless, I, I don't think that this is the same thing in this case when I think back to, for example, studying very hard in my undergraduate career. And then also now with this book, even as I sit with you today on the show, I have a slight anxiety about it because yesterday I thought I would be able to read more than I did. It's going slower than 
I thought, and I'm thinking forward, I have over 900 pages to read by next Wednesday. Uh, I feel the pressure about that because I want to make sure I finish the book because that's important for me. It's important to me to, for me to be prepared for the show to talk about the book. So I, for that reason, also want to finish it. So I feel that pressure. But again, that excitement is also there to have a goal that's challenging, but that also if I know I achieve it, I will feel good about it. And so we can think about goals for ourselves that that have that sweet spot. And when we talk about setting smart goals, you maybe have heard that acronym before, specific, measurable, um, the A could be attainable, realistic, time specific, but a big part about that R part relevance, and then before that A, um, attainable, we have to set a goal that finds that sweet spot of where it's challenging enough that it gets us excited. So if I tell you, read this two-page book in a month, you won't really feel something amazing about accomplishing that task. But also it has to be attainable in the sense that we can do it. So if I also say, read this you know, 10,000-page book in two days, you just won't even want to try because you know there's no point that you can get there. But it, the special thing to do is to find a goal that you can achieve and you won't always really know. So you don't know for sure you can achieve it. And that's also part of the uh, anxiety or excitement that might drive you to see, can I do this? You're, you're pushing yourself to see, can I get that far? Can I do this much? Whatever the specific goal might be for you. And that feeling can get you excited. And to be honest, I'm feeling that right now. So I've done this, uh, the books of the week for, this is going into the fourth year. So it's something like 170 books uh, plus. And sometimes I feel some uh, excitement about finishing the book. It has a challenge, but because I've done it uh, week in, week out, I'm less nervous about it. It's always on my mind when you have a, a goal that takes some effort and you want to be consistent about it, you have to start to become obsessed with it at some level. Of course, there's different degrees of that, but I'm always aware of how much I have left in my book, even in other weeks when the books are shorter, because I'm thinking ahead of my week and when I'll have time and when I think it'll make sense for me to read the book. So it's always on my mind. But this type of excitement and, and almost slight anxiety that I'm having about this, which I know might sound strange for me to say that I'm feeling some stress or anxiety about this and I see that as a good thing, but it makes me feel like I'm doing something meaningful, something exciting, something important, something that I'll be proud of when I do get there. And that's the part that also makes it fun. So when we put ourselves in challenging situations, it actually can feel good even though there is some uh, stress that might come with it. And, and this is related to what I also talked about on Monday's show, that when you're a parent or just even with ourselves, that we have to allow ourselves to face the discomfort that leads towards growth. So, you know, if you react like we might as a parent or we do it to ourselves, you might think, oh, you know, you're getting a little bit nervous about this or you have some anxiety, don't do it at all. Just give it up. Who cares? Don't read the book. It's no problem. Or even, you know, people will tell you, oh, you can just read a synopsis about the the book and that'll be enough. Just talk about the book in some way. No one will even know. But first of all, I will know and that's meaningful to me. And also even I feel uh, a responsibility and I feel a um, way that I have your trust to say that if I'm going to read the books, I will read the book. 
and share the book with you and let you know that I did that. So I do feel this, in a way, responsibility to the listener that if I'm saying I'm going to read the book, I will do that. And so that also I've mentioned before, that accountability that I get and that, again, it's a type of pressure, but pressure isn't always bad, makes me actually push forward more. I know I got to be ready. I know I have to finish the book and that pushes me going forward. So I encourage all of you to think of some goals. Sometimes, you know, this one's just a week, uh, but still to me is meaningful right now and I'm excited about it. Sometimes it's going to be longer. Of course, in a longer period, you can do more and there's bigger things you can do that might make you excited, but set some goals for yourself or maybe just one or two. Uh, sometimes we can actually set too many goals at the same time and we might get overwhelmed or lose focus. You probably will be working on many things at any given time, but you might have some more, uh, some bigger goals that become a priority. And that can really give some excitement and motivation in your life. If you find a goal that you're excited about, that will feel good if you achieve it, that you'll be proud of yourself if you achieve it and will have some sense of genuine pride a good pride, not a pride of uh, boastfulness, but a pride that you feel good about good work that you've done, that can really be meaningful, especially in this time when you might feel like you've lost a lot of the things that made you feel good about what you are doing, made you feel productive. Uh, the lack of structure that many people are experiencing can lead to listlessness and feeling like you're not doing anything and uh, almost like a fatigue and slowing down both physically and also mentally. So a goal can be something to kind of jumpstart that process again of doing something. So think about something that if you achieved would be exciting for you. Again, when we talk about those smart goals it has to be relevant to you, something that means something to you, that if I do this, it'll be important. So for me right now, it's reading this book in this week, but for you, that might not be so significant. And so you have to do something that is meaningful to you because you have to get excited about it and you have to be the one that feels good about getting there and set that goal for yourself and do something that you'll feel good about and push yourself to get there. And, you know, the truth of it is if we're pushing ourselves to make uh, very big goals and there are challenging, sometimes you might not get there. Hopefully not from a lack of effort, but you maybe overshot it. You know, even still with this book, uh, I do think about how much time I'm going to have to put in this weekend and I can get a little nervous of will there be enough time. So I don't know if I overshot my goal for this week. We'll see how it goes. And I really know I'll work very hard to get there. But sometimes you won't get to your goal, but that's okay. Don't look at that as a failure. You are trying to show yourself how far you can go. And until you go in a way too far or go to a place you can't get to, you don't really know your own limits. So if you say, I'm going to run uh, you know, a mile in a certain amount of time, you might not get there the first time, but that gives you an idea of where you are at and some uh, even motivation to maybe strive and push forward. So anyway, with this book, it really brought up a lot of feelings for me, even before I started it, but yesterday getting started, that reminded me of this importance of setting big goals, setting goals that get us excited. And another aspect I'll just touch on before I go to the commercial break, it's important when we set these goals to, to really think about what it's going to feel when you finish or get to that finish line, whatever that is, achieve that goal. Because 
we can start to feel what we think it'll feel like to get there. And using that feeling can be a great source of motivation and inspiration to help fuel us. And so depending on how long your goal is, as far as how long it'll take you to get there, it can be good every so often, whether it's every day, every week, to reconnect to that feeling of getting there. Because those feelings can have a big impact in motivating us to do whatever the hard work is to get to that goal. So I've thought about that with this book, and there's a glossary of terms in the back of the book, and sometimes when I go to find that glossary and I'm getting looking at the you know 950th page, I imagine myself, you know what, some in a few days, not someday in like some long-term sense, in a few days I'll be here, you know, maybe five, six days, and that's going to be amazing. That's going to feel so good, and that gives me a little bit of fuel to keep going. So usually the book of the week, I talk about it, but I don't talk so much about the process of picking it. But this book in particular has brought up a lot of uh, feelings and things related to setting goals that I thought would be worth sharing. But again, the book of the week for this week is Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty. Looking forward to reading it this week, finishing it this week, and sharing it with you on next Wednesday's show. Let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, yes, hi. Hi, thanks for calling. Hi, Dr. Holakui. Uh, I don't hi. know if my voice is good, if you have any issue with my voice or... It's I, not I bad. If you're not on speaker, yeah, you know, we always ask people not to be on speakerphone, but it sounds pretty good. Uh, uh, so no, far. Yeah. no, I'm not on speaker. Is it better? Yes, it sounds pretty good. Yes, go ahead. Okay, dear. Um, okay, the reason I called you, and uh, first of all, I'm very happy talking to you, but you. Uh, the reason I want to talk to you is that uh, my issue is about child molestation. And because uh, once I heard on the radio that you work with kids, I believe, on Thursdays, and that's the basically your goal, one of your goals. And I thought maybe you could be very helpful to me because I needed, uh, although I'm uh, going through therapy, but I really needed to talk to you as well. I wanted to call your dad, but I thought you're the best because you work with kids. And um, I don't know how to start, but... Okay. Um, well, I mean, I'm happy uh, to be talking to you. I'm sure you know, uh, my father would have been very helpful too. But now that me and you are talking, course, let's see no. what we can discuss together. And of course, uh, I do work with children uh, in volunteer ways of, and also on this show, try to yes. talk about parenting and different things related to um, raising children and what happens. And of course, unfortunately, child sexual abuse is a real issue that affects many people and has affected and continues to be a real issue that we need to talk about because people are suffering and it has so many big effects on people who go through it. So are, are you speaking from your own personal experience that you experienced yes, child molestation? It's, okay. it's very ridiculous, I, if I say. Maybe it's ridiculous. Uh, I'm 56 now. But, right. what's, uh, ridiculous of, what, what's ridiculous about it? It's about myself, yes. No, no, but what's ridiculous about what you shared that you're 56? Because uh, I think um, 
at this age, I should have overcome uh, the issues. But uh, what happened? Well, let me. Was can I just? And I, I don't. Let me just share something quickly with you because mm -hmm. I, I can understand I, I what you're sharing. Hear you, Doctor Okay. I don't know can why you hear I, me? Oh, I'm not sure what the issue is. Can you hear me right now? I can hear you, but it's very like your voice is very far. That's why. Hmm. Okay, I'm not sure what why yeah, that is. Because I'm on the, the highest volume, and I'm not on the speaker. Okay, and yeah, I'll, I'll anyway, speak as loudly. Uh, yeah, yeah, let me, if, if you don't mind me ask, adding something, I hope you can hear me, but you know, I, you shared I'm 56, so I should be over this. And so, so many thoughts come to mind when you say that, because first of all, most of us, we could be very hard on ourselves and think we shouldn't have issues or problems uh, but even more so if someone has experienced something like childhood sexual abuse or abuse of any kind we know that most of the time the child internalizes it as not someone is doing something bad or that they are bad but actually that they, they as the victim are actually bad and something is happening to them yeah. because either they so so your mindset that i am still bad that i haven't gotten over this unfortunately is very much in line with what happened and our childhood whatever happens to us in our childhood almost not almost always it always has a big impact on our lives and in those yeah. early years we form a lot of our understandings of the world of ourselves of relationships of what to expect of what to accept and it it will have a big impact so even if you've worked on it i would think it's unlikely that your childhood sexual abuse whatever the details are would have no effect on you now and so interestingly enough part of what will be your healing process that you probably have been already on is to have a more compassionate relationship with yourself to be more self-loving and so it's complicated because it's intertwined with these issues as well but just mm -hmm. something i wanted to share because so many people can feel this way that i should have gotten over this by now i'm 56 yeah. i'm 66 i'm 36 whatever the age is we think we should not be affected by what happened in childhood because now we are bigger and older and smarter and had so much time but that foundation that's laid in those first years is so meaningful and powerful and when something so horribly wrong happens it's going to have deep effects on that foundation so i i just had to say mm -hmm. something there before you continued but i definitely wanted to hear from you what you wanted to share next go ahead okay um i i'm not going to go through the very ugly details but i okay, want to sure. let you know uh this person was my um actually he is still alive and um uh, uh, he's living his legacy, and that makes me even more angry. Mm. Um, he he is my uncle, my aunt's husband. And uh, when he got to our, uh, basically, um, family, I was um, about two. And then what I can um, remember that he was um, not that in... in um, it wasn't hidden, it was in other people's view. He would play with me a lot. And one of the memories I have that he would um, basically hug me and throw me on the bed and laughing. And I, I'm, I'm so surprised how I can, because I don't remember most of my memories at that age. But that one is so clear. And I was, I remember how scared I was. And then after the age of, Probably was about four. 
that um, my, my dad had car. I was the first child. And uh, we would go to um, road trips, and I was sitting on his lap, on this guy's lap mm-hmm. beside my dad. And that, uh, these memories were all blank to me. And uh, what happened was that after a few years, I was listening to your dad. Uh, it's about after, like about five years ago, I started listening to his shows and his seminars, and after one of the seminars about two years ago, when I came out of the seminar, I exploded, and these memories jumped on me. I couldn't believe that I could remember that uh, what happened to me in the car every time I was on his lap. And um, and then um, this would go on and on. It, it's, I remember... The only thing I remember, I was very attractive to him. And um, I didn't know anything about grooming, right? So I thought um, I didn't know anything So until I remembered this stuff. And then um, I just let you know, for a few years, I don't know what had happened. I had blank memory, 100%. At age of six, I was uh, the witness of my real uncle, uh, he was only 20, committed suicide and died. And I saw the view of they were taking him outside, and I was on the um, roof watching down the yard. And uh, it was after that, before that age, I don't remember anything other than the stuff I just told you. And then after that, um, again, it's blank about him, until the age of about 11, that he rented my um, parents' basement for his business. And then he got much closer to me and talking to me on the phone and talking bad stuff about my mom and my aunt and always making jokes about my dad that he was a very stupid, not very intelligent guy. And... Um, I remember those stuff, and after age of maybe 12, maybe 13, I, I have 100%, and this is very, very, very weird for me. I have 100% blank memory. I have no visualization of those visits, nothing at all, until the age of 16 that I learned that he had the issue with my other aunt. She was not married. And that exploded after she got married. She told her husband that this had happened to her. And at that time, I was 16. So it was like a very shocking that I thought I was being loved by this guy. Mm -hmm. And I trusted him so much. And suddenly, I realized everything was a lie. And I decided at that age, not even look at him anymore, which I did. And after that, um, the life, and it it was also interesting for me to remember that up to age of school age, that I was probably being molested by him. Um, I don't remember anything, again, visualization, nothing. And after this was maybe disappeared for my elementary school, my grades were all 
I was top of the school, like uh-huh. I was number one ch- uh, student in the class. Until the age of 11 that I moved to the junior. And this happened that I told you, he talked to me on the phone and then he got closer to me, even physically probably, which I don't remember that in my mind. But my grades were all dropped. So my mm. school uh, activities were very low until this age of 16. And after that, again, I, I could go back. So my grades were higher, but I hated myself. I hated myself, and I always felt I'm a criminal, that my, what I did to my aunt, and how come, how come nobody is rescuing me? And I was in anger with my mother and father, how much they were ignorant, and they didn't even pay attention what was going on with me. So, uh, and I got married when I was 19, and I was always having not good feeling that I didn't tell anybody until five years ago that I started with your dad programs, and and three years ago, it was 2017, I believe, and I came out of the seminar, and this exploded to me, and I told everything to my aunt, the, the girl that was also, her life was affected by him. Mm-hmm. And my mom came to visit us in July 2017, and I told her, and she confronted by phone, confronted my aunt and my cousins, and everybody jumped on her, and the next day she got stroke. And she went through the brain surgery and everything. And ever since she went crippled. And last week she passed away. And I I just came from her funeral. And I feel so bad. I feel guilty about everything. About my mom. About myself. And I don't know what to do. And I'm so angry. I, I He's living in a very good financial condition, and her kids, and everybody says, you are ruining our other And I'm, I'm being just quiet here, but I, I, can't, I can't live like this. I, no, somehow I think I want to tell him, uh, through my therapy, my therapist told me I shouldn't be stopping myself. I should write a letter to him. I should, whatever I want to do, I should mm-hmm. call him. I should, somehow I have to throw out my anger. But I feel guilty because I don't want to ruin anybody's life. Although my life is already ruined. Yeah. Because I know if I didn't have this bad experience in my life, I'm pretty sure I would be a very successful person. Because I don't think I was stupid. I don't think I was Low IQ, all of this stuff came to me after I basically realized what I've done. So I don't know yeah. what happened to me, but uh, but I I want to ask you if I if I call and I say whatever I want to say, is it a bad thing to do? Is it revenge? Is it what? 
I, well, I need your guidance. Sure, and I, I will give you my thoughts on that, and um, I don't want to, I'm not delaying the answer just to delay it, because there's so many things you shared, and um, it's so, it's heartbreaking, because obviously every experience is unique, but there's so many themes in what you shared that many people experience who have undergone uh, sexual abuse from... Um, you know, the family not being aware to the family reacting negatively once it's finally, no matter how much longer, brought out to your own feelings about yourself, to the challenges you faced in school and your grades dropping. You know, it's heartbreaking. It's as if you're saying someone broke my legs and then people were upset I didn't walk, you know. And, and so it wasn't your fault that you were, let's say, struggling in school or other things you were going through. But no one knew that those legs were broken, that you were hurt in this way, and you yourself blamed yourself. May I yourself, say something, so, Doctor? Yes, of course. The reason I exploded again now was that after my, my mom passed away, he sent a text to my phone, sending the condolences. Although, although he knew that, uh, I, I believe my aunt told him about whatever I had told my mother and everybody in the family know, especially especially that he had these issues with other female in mm -hmm. the family. So he has a very bad background, but every time something had come up, everybody made it silent, like, mm -hmm. be quiet, don't say anything. And when he sent me that text, then I realized, oh my God, why am I not standing for myself? You know, I, I yeah. want to stand for myself, but I don't Which know I, what to do. Yeah, and I and your feelings of rage, even not just anger, are completely understandable, justifiable, yeah. and it makes sense that you're feeling them and that you want to express them. And we, yeah. we're going to go to a commercial break, but definitely I want to keep our conversation going. Thank you. And what we'll look at Thank along you. with other things you brought up is. I want, of course, you have the right for the, the feelings you have, and they make sense. We just want to make sure you express it in a way that also feels good to you. I'm less concerned about yeah. what he's going to react or the rest of the family, but there could be differences that you'll feel in how you express it that we want to make sure it's in the best way for yourself to, to feel good yeah. about what happens. So um, let's go to a commercial break. Thank you so much for sharing what you have so far. I, of Thank course, you. I know it's difficult, and I appreciate you sharing that. And we'll, we'll talk some more after the break, okay? Thank you. Sure. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, I was with the caller. Caller, are you still there? Hello? Hello there. Yes, hi. Okay. Um, hi. So before, before the break, you shared a lot about, uh, you know, it's so much to even for me to, to look at. And I take notes while the callers are talking. And I thought about something over the break. I wrote so many things that you were saying. And mm -hmm. there was so much there. And it made me get the sense of the disorganization even you must feel emotionally and psychologically with all these things you've had to deal with throughout your life, these different types of traumas that you experience. And then the re-traumatization you've experienced recently by first uncovering these repressed memories, but then how your family responded, um, how it affected your mother and all these things. It's just, 
you know, trauma after trauma, which unfortunately often can be the case for some people. They experience trauma and then there's re-traumatizations that can happen at different points. And so before I ask you a few more questions and we, we explore some things together, I did want to share a few thoughts. One was you mentioned first that there's some blank spots in your memory uh, throughout childhood and even older, and that also that a lot of these memories were repressed until about five years ago. And sometimes people can question these types of things. Unfortunately, they might think, well, if they didn't, how could you forget something so significant? It doesn't, it might not make sense if it's such a big deal. Uh, or they might think people very sadly, they'll think they're making it up. And so, of course, there's no way to say for sure something is real or not as far as a memory goes. But we know that people do have repressed memories. And it can make sense when we recognize that, of course, our brain is trying to take in all the information, see what's going on. But if something is too overwhelming, it can make sense that the brain finds a way to block that from being registered. It's too hard to take that in. So it could feel better to not even feel that thing, to not even remember that. And so I just wanted to make that point because very often people can question things like repressed memories or if a child brings something up a few years later or as in your case many years later it oftentimes the memories themselves can be um, doubted and then of course people react differently to though to, to what it brings up for the family and so um, it's just heartbreaking what you've had to experience and how it continues to hurt you and then of course your mother just passing a week ago in and of itself that's always you know a very painful experience for people to go through but on top of that you mentioned having some guilt related to how uh, your sharing of these memories and then her getting involved and talking with the family and all those things had an effect on her and then that gave you this sense of guilt and guilt is something a burden that you've carried since your childhood that was not yours it was guilt that of things that were not your fault. This man doing these horrific, maybe the worst things a human being can do, actions to you as a child and as you got older and to other women as well and other girls is not something that was your fault or any of their faults, but something horrible and monstrous that he was doing. And unfortunately, th that guilt is so old and feels so real that I think it could be difficult for you to shake that feeling or to think it's not real. But I hope you can at least at some rational level, as far as a conscious level, be aware that maybe it wasn't your fault or that it isn't your fault at all. And he really was doing something horrible. And I think you're seeing that more, but the feeling can take a longer time to change. Yes. And, and so I know your big question was, of course, sharing all this, um, there's so much there and we might get into more of that but your big question was what do you do now as far as expressing your anger towards him that seems to be your big question and i'll also add this i'm, I'm happy to hear you mention uh, a therapist and i'm glad you're going through therapy i hope that it is focused on the trauma as well that you went through but i also add that to say that i want to be mindful of the fact that since you're working with someone and they will be giving you guidance and working with you that i don't want you to take what i'm saying as um, overriding what your work is there i'll share some of my thoughts and explore with you but i know that you're going to be working on these issues there as well and, and even in asking me it does show this level of almost wanting permission 
to do it. Also, I think you want to know which one is the best way or what is the best way. But there might be a sense yeah. of, am I allowed to, even like you said, is that revenge and that's something bad. Uh, and again, your anger makes total sense. Completely, it makes sense. And when someone has wronged us, our first reaction is to hurt them back. So we can completely understand that even wanting to make him hurt or make him feel bad. And worse than that, it feels unfair that he seems to be living so well. You're saying he's wealthy, you mentioned yeah. leaving his legacy, yeah. and that can feel very unfair and unjust, and I can completely understand that. And now, can you do something to make that right or make that fair? I don't know. And will that make you feel better? We also don't know. But I want to first ask you, what do you, uh, you know, what do you want to do or what comes to your mind first? And we can explore it a little more. I want everybody to know what a monster he is. That's mm -hmm. for sure. I wish I could do that. And um, I, I want to do that. And even my brother-in-law, because uh, uh, I visited them during the funeral in the States. Uh, I'm in Canada. So um, she said, actually, my brother-in-law had some questions. He was, um, he's in, dark, in the dark. He was wondering what's going on because everybody is acting strangely and my sister didn't want me to talk about it because it's going to affect, I don't know, her life if he judges me, if he thinks I was a bad I don't know. And at that time, I really wanted to talk, to, to talk and let him know what I went through. And I want to know many people that they respect this guy so much know who really he is because he's still standing tall and says he has not done anything. And mm. this hurts me even more. <laughs> Very much. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I can, that does, uh, you know, very unfair, especially if people speak highly of him when you know what he's done. It just feels uh, completely unfair and just wrong, and it's going to make you angry. I do also have a, a thought, um, you know, telling people, well, first of all, you know, you can tell people, uh, and you have to be ready that their response might not be something you like. Very often, denial is the first response with these kinds of things in many families, especially Iranian families, especially previous, you know, older generations. The first yeah. response, and not just first, sometimes they won't move from it, is a complete denial. You're making this up. They'll blame you. And so that's something you have to be ready for, that if you share it with people, depending on who it is, they might respond in a way that could make you feel worse. And so you have to ask yourself if you are prepared for that response and reaction. That and that's yes, one of the big I, issues. I don't you know, care. I don't care okay. anymore because. Okay, and I can get that. Another thing for me, myself. yeah, yes. a, a big issue for me is if if he has access to any potential victims now, you know, younger girls or anyone. That that's another could be. And again, I would never push someone that they have to say something because these things are so personal um, for you to be aware of or think about because as look at how much it hurt you, which we know how un unfair that was and horrible that was, and we don't want anyone else to be a victim of his. So it's something to, to think about for yourself of um, do I know of that? And that might even affect what decision you make of who to tell and how to tell them. Um, because, of course, we wouldn't want anyone else to experience something like what you, you've had to experience. And so that's another aspect of that. I have one question, though. Yes. It was always my question that 
if he could do something to a very like young child, is it possible that it was only me being affected at that age, or it could be his own children as well? Because nobody says anything, but yeah. There we are don't, some of course, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, it can happen. Parents not everybody do molest can their touch a child, you know. Not everybody yes. can touch the body of a child. That's a different issue if somebody is raped by a rapist. But touching a child during that like age of, I don't know, three and a half, four, um, and uh, doing those stuff, is it possible that this was just one child or this person has issues? Well, you know, it's you know I mean, of course, well, well know yeah, well, of I mean, but, you know, you said if this person has issues, of course, this person has issues. In a way, what you just said highlights this point that we can blame ourselves, like maybe somehow you were in a way special, but specially bad, even in a way that only he chose you to do that to or you, you know, even sometimes, unfortunately, kids can come to this conclusion or parents will even tell them you somehow asked for it or wanted it to happen. Um, so you might, you know, have some of that type of thinking too. But of course, if a, a man touches a child in that way, of course, they have severe illness mentally and are not doing okay. So of course, he is mentally ill. But now, did he have other victims? Of course, we can't say that for sure. We know that he did or didn't. But we know that very often people who do this, it's not just a one, they're looking for opportunities oftentimes. And so we'll... Um, will use those opportunities wherever they come up. It could be with their own children, but they're also, of course, are very aware of trying not to get caught and not to, to have, uh, you know, be exposed in that way. So that obviously can complicate things too. But the fact that he did it to you means that he is the one who has this issue, not that you were somehow um, in any way responsible for that. But yeah, it's possible he did with his own children it's possible with other individuals related to the family it's very possible we know that they can very much lead a type of a double life where they do these things and so they can have as you said you know good reputation amongst most people and people would never even suspect they would do something like that but mm -hmm. um you know it's the reality of it and this is why you know i talk to parents about this and it's not to create a sense of paranoia that you should think every person is out there to touch your child in an inappropriate way but that to be aware that anyone could do that so we are aware of what context we leave our kids you know parents sometimes will think oh it's the uncle it's the grandparent it's the this it's a that we should have nothing to worry about well yes most of the time you probably don't so again it's not to say you should be paranoid that everyone is going to hurt your child in that way but to be aware of that possibility is there and almost always it's not someone you would suspect oh yeah that person will do that because no one looks really that way sometimes we have um, you know this image of what a child molester looks like and some of them might be that way but the overwhelming majority are people that look like everyone else and so we have to be aware of who you leave mm -hmm. your child with what's the context who's around if you know maybe not leaving them alone with one person especially male because that's more likely to be a perpetrator as the male um, but mm -hmm. doesn't have to be only so those are things to be aware of but yes he definitely could have uh, hurt other people in the family are you wondering if that means you should 
talk to others in the family to see if they were affected or what how how was that affecting uh, your no, own no, decision? No, no, no. I don't want to talk. I I just want to talk generally mm-hmm. as what had has happened to me and what type of person he is because the whole family this family has he has grandkids. He has three daughters and uh, I I don't know but what I am 100% sure is that he has affected many of the females in the mm-hmm. family, you know, adult females. But about my own, myself, and the other end, he did kind of grooming first. In my case, it was like it started so early. In her case, it probably started when she was about 12 or 13. But he is very manipulative. He is mm-hmm. very manipulative. So even his actions also affected my and from my mother's side. That mm-hmm. it didn't go too far because my mom caught him. And everything went basically out of the box. And so everybody knew about that. And But, but because nobody knew him, my mom also blamed my dad's sister, mm-hmm. whereas if everybody knew how manipulative he is, yeah. how could all of these people are doing wrong things? No, he is doing something wrong. He is manipulating people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. So no, he- I agree. And, and so, you know, I'm going to say this point, and, uh, you know, um, I spoke a lot about different things, and we didn't even get to exactly the question that you had, and so I'm going to keep you... Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't mind to stay for the next segment, yeah. too. Um, exactly. But, you know, it, it, you're right. It, it seems bizarre. And I'm not saying it wouldn't have made a difference. But I can also tell you what you've also experienced within your own family and what so many families experience is the denial can be so strong that even with a lot of evidence, they might not change their mind because it could feel too hard for them to believe or to confront that mm-hmm. potential possible truth so you're right it's, it can seem shocking that they would think well if there's so many people coming forward how could it all be them and none of it him and we're not being suspicious of him but people can denial is a very powerful mechanism that we use to try to keep some kind of order in our in our world or in our life and in our families and unfortunately persian families we do it very strongly where we just hold on to something or we blindly don't look for the truth because it's so much more convenient for us not to see it. So I can see how puzzling it is for you that how were they not more suspicious or more aware, but also you're mm-hmm. describing is very charismatic and manipulative. And so he was probably good at convincing people that he was right. And they preferred to think he was right because that was an easier truth to deal with. And so it seems to have persisted all that time. So again, let's let's keep talking after the break. I do want to get to a place where you feel like I've addressed some of your questions about what to do next. Again, appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you very much. Sure. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delok. We will be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Caller, are you still there? Yes, dear. I'm here. Okay. All right. So, um, you know, we've we've talked a lot about what you've went through and of course there's so much anger that you have which is completely understandable and you 
um, May wanted I say to ask. Yes, of course. Continue. Please. What I wanted to tell you that how this text affected me mm-hmm. was actually if somebody has done a lot to you and your family and then standing in front of you and just laughing at mm-hmm. what I've done to you. You couldn't do anything. Your parents, like he's humiliating us. That feeling makes me even more angry. Mm-hmm. If at least he would apologize, maybe it calm me down. But it it hurts me so much. That's why I wanted to talk to you for my yeah. final decision. No, and I mean, yeah, the, for him to you know act as if nothing has happened, you know, in a way, not to say he's responsible for everything that happened to your mom, but, you know, you feel like he contributed to what she went through as far as her health deteriorating. And then for him to send the condolences can feel like even more angering because it's like you are part of what hurt her. So I can understand how that was even more angering. Of course, just any communication with him is probably painful for you and brings up a lot of bad feelings, but especially that I could see how it felt so wrong and so bad. And so that makes sense. And your anger makes complete sense how upset you are um, with him and how angry you are with him. So um, you, what would, as I was asking you before, what would you like to do as far as, you know, I know you, you have this, and sometimes you have this image, it seems like of telling everybody and ruining his reputation and making sure everyone knows, which you could do, but it does seem like that would, probably um, be very challenging and difficult and you might not get to that goal or result and uh, one thing I, I remembered I wanted to mention as you shared if he acknowledged it and I mentioned this I think last week I forgot which day but how significant an apology is and an acknowledgement of wrongdoing is in healing the pain when someone hurts us and it is really the biggest gift we can give someone and the fastest way to facilitate the healing of something when someone does something wrong. Unfortunately, very often, we don't get that apology or acknowledgement from that person. And in this case, it seems unlikely you're gonna get it, especially voluntarily, but even no matter what happens. And that's something for you to uh, be ready for, that of course it makes sense. You would like an acknowledgement and apology from him. You deserve that. Uh, 100%, but very likely you won't get that. So you might have to be prepared that your healing is going to happen without any apology or acknowledgement from him, or really maybe acknowledgement from other family members, which hurts, but just something to be mindful of that you might not get what you deserve, as unfortunately can often be the case. When when I started my therapy, the very Mm -hmm. first time I... um, told my therapist, she said, once you tell me his name, I have to report this, and mm-hmm. a letter has to go to his door um, that this has happened, and that, that's what I thought, okay, that really doesn't um, help me as much as if people around him know about him. I don't care if they deny it, because they can deny whatever they want to deny. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the worst thing could happen was my husband knowing about it, okay? Unfortunately, or may I say, he's, he's understanding. So 
He knows. Mm. And that's all matters to me. And Good. I don't care how they want to react. I don't care if they deny. They know by themselves that that's the truth. And I'm sorry that they have to deal with it. But at least even, even his daughters didn't want to acknowledge that ever. Say, okay, mm. we are sorry if you had to go through such things. Yes, they want to deny it. But if I want to wait for those reactions, to be in my favor, I don't think I ever get it. So I don't care yeah. about that. And well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. My kids and my husband that they 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 found out about it because of this issue. Because when my mom was talking to them on the phone, my husband was actually listening somewhere in the house, and he never said anything until I said myself. Mm -hmm. So. I don't care. Hmm. I, I just want to. I just want to know. Should I feel guilty if I do it? That's all. Well, uh, uh, so taking a step back, I'm glad your husband and your kids. They are. You know, they responded positively. From what you're sharing, they believed you and were understanding of what you went through. That's most important. I'm glad you got that. And then also what you added. Um, you know, you can say what you feel is important for you to say. And of course, you're going to care about how the family members respond. It would be impossible to say you're not going to care at all. But as much as possible, if you can be detached from it as much as you can be from the result or their feeling about it or their conclusion, that'll probably be better. So you can say, I want to say this, but to say, I want them to believe this or think this, you could set yourself up for a really uh, difficult and painful experience that you say, I'm going to tell, let's say, his daughter and his daughter is going to believe me. That part you can't control whether she believes you or what she thinks or feels, but you can control what you'd like to say. And so if you could focus more on what you say and thinking if that's going to feel good for you, that'll help you rather than trying to focus too much on, I want the family to think this, feel this, treat him in this way, even though all those things are understandable and make sense that you'd have that feeling. But if you can try to be as detached as possible from that result, because that part of it is more out of your control, it probably is better. Now, should you feel guilty? You know, it's kind of itself an interesting question. It's hard to tell someone they should feel guilty about something or they should feel something as a, as a therapist you rarely will, will say that i might i can understand you might have guilt related to it and that's something for you to think about i think your anger makes sense and expressing it makes sense and so you have to ask yourself if i tell them what are the effects it might have that i think it could have how will i feel telling him um, is it important for you to tell him specifically who the perpetrator or other people or both uh, or, or what do you have in mind with, with those things you know these are all very big questions that more than anyone you are going to know the answer about what's going to feel right to you um, yeah i want i, 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 I want to i want all the son-in-laws to know those matters. Okay. The because son in law? And they did not want to accept it. They didn't want to mm -hmm. help me in a way, at least, like the minimum they could do by talking to me. 
Yeah, and that's what I, I'm saying, to be ready that whoever you tell might respond in a way that you don't like, and you have to at least be prepared for that, that you could tell the son-in-law, and the son-in-law can tell you, let's just say, he says, you're crazy, you're making it up, you're trying to ruin our family. Uh, you know, I'm just saying some potential negative reaction. And you have to be ready for that, that you don't have any guarantee that he's going to respond in a way that you like or feels good at all. And actually, it could make you feel worse. So you have to ask yourself, is it for me so, is it important for me to tell him just because I want to tell him and it could have that impact I want, but I know it won't. Is that very significant for you? And if it is, which I can understand, uh, then go forward, but go forward knowing that his response could actually be even hurtful, not helpful. So Does that make sense? I say, yes, I, it makes sense. So then because of that doubt, I have to stay quiet again. No, no, not at That's all. No, I'm not actually saying that. I'm saying that be ready that you can say it and he responds in a way you don't like, but you still might feel good that you said it, you know? So you might go tell someone, hey, you did this, I, I don't like it. And they say, oh, you're crazy, you made it up. And you might still feel like, you know, just the fact that I got it off my chest, that was important for me and just letting them know. And, you know, you might also think, I just want them to know and they might react in a way of your whatever, it's something really negative, but you want them to know because they actually might carry that with them and it might make them think about it later. So they might give you a reaction like, oh, what are you talking about or something negative, but they might um, later on think about it. And I, I didn't in any, mean to, any way mean to imply you shouldn't tell them. I was just telling you to be mindful of their reaction might not be something you like, but that doesn't yeah. mean it's not worth it to you. You know, so I work with people sometimes and they, when I'm preparing them to have a difficult conversation, I focus on what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And I also try to work with them in um, recognizing to be as detached as they can be from how the other person responds. Not that they're not going to have feelings. Of course you will. If they say something negative to you, of course you're going to feel bad and it's going to affect you. But that doesn't still mean it's not worth it. But it's just realizing that we don't know how the other person is going to respond and we have to be ready that it could go away we don't like. Because sometimes with these types of very intense conversations, especially the way you've talked about the anger and even feelings of revenge, we can play out a, an idealized conversation in our head. I'm going to say this, they're going to say that, and it's going to feel this way, and it's so good. And then we actually experience the conversation, and when it doesn't go that way, it could really crush us that we, we thought it was going to be this thing, and it wasn't that. Now, again, that doesn't mean your side of saying it is not going to feel good to you. That can actually be very meaningful and make you feel much better and maybe allow you to get some closure to be like, you know what, now I've said my piece, I can a little bit more close that door and move forward without thinking about him or thinking about what I have to tell the family. And that might be very meaningful for you and important for you. So that's what I, what, so I'm saying is to be less focused on a specific result, like they're going to believe me, they're going to start hating him, they're going to start whatever it is, but more about what does it mean for you to say these things to whoever it is and then to, to capture those feelings and make sure you say it in a way that you feel good about and then the result is going to be a, in a lot of ways out of your hands yes I have my last question is that in regards with myself uh, when I went through the therapy um, I had to write I had to go somewhere open space and say stuff that I wanted to take off my chest to him mm -hmm. loud, just just by myself in the mm -hmm. in my 
own uh, uh, head, but loudly, and um, even sitting in front of my uh, therapist, imagining him sitting there, talking mm-hmm. to him, going through the uh, 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 hypnotism, if I'm not using the word wrong, um, mm-hmm. hypnotherapy or what. So all of this stuff uh, I'm going through. And I was feeling much better until this text. And then yeah. I asked who has given his number to, my number to him. And they said, oh, um, years ago you did. Years ago, more than the time, like the length of that I have this phone number. So it's been kind of um, sarcastic, like if I say right, that you did it you were when you were 15 or something mm-hmm. like that, right? And it hurts me even more, and that relates to what you just told me that instead of helping me, they still say that it was my fault. And that's why I came to this point that I have to um, say my my stuff, Mm -hmm. my side, on my side, and let it go. Whatever is going to happen, it's going to happen. I don't care. Even if I I don't have to see them for the rest of my life, I don't care. And and maybe you even at some level prefer some of that if they're gonna you know not um, respect what you've been through and listen to you it can make sense and um, you know it's interesting because you said the text and especially because you didn't even know he had your number in a way that probably felt like its own invasion of your space personally as well from someone who already in such horrible ways violated you and was intrusive in the, in the worst ways possible. So it's, and of course, being surprised by it, being upset with how did he get my number, and of course, related to your mother's passing, it makes sense that it brought up a lot of feelings. I think that's not surprising at all, and um, that's probably something you always will have in connection to him. Sometimes we think if we've healed from some past trauma or past wound, we no longer have feelings about that thing, and that's not necessarily true. You actually oftentimes still have feelings about it if it's brought up, but it might be affecting you less in your everyday life, and, and that could be a significant step of progress. So I would expect you to always have feelings about this man, uh, how often he comes to your mind and the ways it affects you might change, but always that's going to be there. So it seems like you're you're sharing more and more your answers of why it's important for you to say something, and I think that makes sense. I hope you're still going to therapy and will also explore this more deeply with your therapist to make sure you know you don't need to rush this of course i'm not saying don't do it but to make sure you do it in a way that feels right to you even writing it out can be good because even that process might feel good where you know what i want to share these parts or i don't want to share these parts whatever it is but make it a, a process type of a thing and it maybe won't be something that gives you some complete closure but it could give you a nice feeling to at least get what's off your chest and to let go of some of this pain and anger that you're holding on to this. So um, I hope whatever you end up doing does feel good and right to you and wish you the best in general going forward. But, but I want to say yes. something that all the listeners, that 
Um, it's been years that I can't stand for myself. I can't say mm. anything. I, I always have my voice caught in my throat. I can't, I can't, I still can't at this age. I cannot answer back and I cannot mm. stand up for myself. So uh, if somebody goes through such thing, because from that age, I, I was told to be quiet, to be quiet. And it hurts so much, so people should know and be careful with their kids so much. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry that you went through that, but I'm, you know, even there you're sharing your voice as hard as it is, and I hope people do listen to that. And um, if you've been the victim, to realize it wasn't your fault, but also to parents, as you said, to allow your children to have a voice always, to not go to the old school mentality that kids should respect whoever's older and just listen to them that they always have a yeah. right to voice whatever they don't like, whatever is pain, paining them, hurting them. They always have that. And it's unfortunate that you recognize at some level you still carry that with you. But I can tell you're trying to, even by calling, by what you're doing, go against that to not silence yourself and to recognize you deserve to have a voice and your wounds deserve to be healed. Thank you very much. Thank you so time. much for calling. Yeah. I really appreciate you calling. You are so lovely. Thank you very much. Oh, you are so kind. Thank you well, very much. My me. pleasure. I'm so happy you called. I'm very happy I got the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You take gave you, me take that care. opportunity. Thank you. Have a nice mm, day. Well, thank Bye. you. You too. All right. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment uh, or segments, I got to have a conversation with someone and I'm so happy and grateful to her for sharing her story as painful as it was. Um, of course, just painful to hear it, but can only imagine what she's had to experience, but very grateful to her for sharing her story with us. And, you know, she even had some words at the end to parents and people to keep in mind. And although I don't have her on the line anyway, and I usually don't like to talk about someone's case unless they can also talk, I did want to share some of the themes uh, of, of things that came up in our conversation together and some thoughts I had on them because uh, there was so much in what she shared. Every painful experience, every experience in general is unique, but oftentimes we find some themes that are similar and patterns that are important for people to keep in mind. A book I wanted to mention to her, maybe she already is um, aware of it or has read it, is The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score. It's a very well-known and classic book when it comes to dealing with trauma. And so I um, just wanted to recommend that to her and anyone who's listening in the process of dealing with trauma. But um, so much of what she shared is important to look at. It was heartbreaking to hear how much she, in different points in her life, and even still would blame herself for what has happened. And she discussed her grades and what she went through and how when she finally was away from this person who was uh, molesting her, her grades went up. And then when he returned in her life, her grades went down. And I discussed this on Monday's show and this comes up a lot in forms of education, parenting. A lot of times we just look at kids' behavior and we think we're just supposed to judge it as good or bad. Oh, they're getting bad grades. That's wrong. Let's punish them. Let's make them feel bad because that's not a good thing. 
and we're just focused on some kind of fixed result of grades and what it's supposed to be rather than seeing the whole child or uh, even more than that trying to be curious of what's going on in the child's life that might be contributing to that and so thankfully it's usually not this extreme of a case but when i work with families and they tell me their child is getting a d or f's in school i let them know that unless your kid is in the wrong class let's say they don't know how to do any kind of math and you put them in a calculus class if they're getting a d or an f that's less about effort and ability, or it's less about ability, I should say, and more about an emotional grade. Something is going on. And so if you see that your child is getting an F, the most common reaction is to get mad or get upset and think we have to punish this kid. We have to show him or her why it's so wrong. and We're disappointed. Take away their phone or their car or privileges. And that's where our mind goes to, unfortunately, very often. And that's the classic ways that we respond. But if we actually pay more attention, we might realize this kid is telling us something through this bad grade. Now, they might not be consciously saying that, but at least unconsciously or in the reality of it, something is being brought to our attention that this child is not okay. So if we approach our kids with the mindset of curiosity rather than judgment, it has a very different effect on how our child feels, what we also learn about our child, and how we can then help them. Uh, very often, one of the biggest complaints that parents have about teenagers is they don't tell me anything. Now, of course, teenagers in general, compared to childhood, are going to tell you, and in a way should be telling you less about their lives. More of it becomes private, more of it becomes things they don't want to talk to you about. They're talking to their friends more about things that, that is going, you know, going on in their life. So it makes sense that they're telling you less. But if they're telling you nothing, or if the uh, communication lines have completely gone away and died down, you should be asking yourself, it's not just, oh, my kid is so quiet, my kid doesn't say anything, my kid is so secretive, but how easy am I making it for my child to tell me what's going on in their life, to tell me something they did, to things they're going through, mistakes they've made, um, bad things they've done. And you often will find that we don't give kids this space. The child goes, if I go tell my mom I did this, she's gonna flip out. If I tell my dad the grade I got on this test, he's gonna get mad at me or yell at me or punish me in some way. If I say I'm not even sure I wanna do this thing, they might get upset. Or if I bring this up, they're going to ask me a million questions about it. Or if I talk about my friends, they're going to judge that friend and tell me I can't be with that person anymore. So we have to look at how easy we make it for our kids to be open with us, to share things with us. And if we recognize our role as a parent isn't in to just make our kids do this and not do that, which is often what parents think, it's just to control and maybe in a more mild sense manage their behavior, your role is to have first and foremost a relationship with your child where you can communicate and connect, but also to help them develop into uh, an adult, a young adult, a human being not just make them this or make them that, make them not do this, make them do that, but to help them grow and to develop, which means we need to have communication with them. You need to allow them to explore with you things that are going on. So make your focus less about judging them and trying to make them do this or that, and more about understanding 
them, connecting with them, and communicating with them. Because it could be so heartbreaking to see that a child is what looks like is acting out, doing something wrong, getting bad grades, but they're actually suffering. Something major is happening. As I told the caller when it came to her own life, it's like if a child has two broken legs and you're wondering why they're not running fast, and then you get mad at them and say, you're supposed to run faster, you're supposed to get a, a good score in this race, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do that, not realizing that both legs are broken. And so sometimes our children or people are, are emotionally very broken and very hurt, and we are not aware of that. But we have to give them the space to share what's going on, to communicate what they're going through. And so if we approach with a mindset of curiosity, I want to understand my child. You know, we can ask the question why in a judgmental way and why in a curious way. Why in a judgmental way is like, why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? Why in a curious way is that, oh, you did this. I'm trying to understand why you did this or did that. And that can have a very different feeling for the person who's hearing that to feel like, oh, they genuinely want to know so they can understand me and know me, not to judge me and blame me for what is going on. And so unfortunately, and so sadly, as, as the caller was sharing her experience, you see that so often parents approach with this judgmental mindset. And rather than understanding their children more and showing them that they're going to be loved and accepted for who they are and whatever it is they're going through, they feel like they have to hide, lie and defend themselves to make sure you like them, love them and won't punish them or blame them for what's going on. Now, in the last segment, I also want to continue uh, with the conversation I had with her, some of the themes that came up, especially when it comes to um, child sexual abuse and molestation, of course, the effects that it can have, but also some thoughts for parents uh, of what they can do in regards to that. So let's go into our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I did want to share some more thoughts, especially to parents when it comes to child sexual abuse. It's a topic that we would rather not talk about because of how dark and horrible it is, which I can understand, but we can't afford not to talk about it because it is real and because it is so horrible that we don't want to avoid talking about it because of the real threat that is there. It is a real thing. We have to be aware of it. And there are things we can do to try to make the likelihood of it happening less or of making that if it does afflict us, we respond in a better way. But there's no way to say we're going to make it impossible for it to happen. And that's just a reality of life. Many of the things we'd like to control completely, we don't have 100% control over it. But we want to do everything we can to make it less likely to affect us or if it does make the effect less so when it comes to this issue first we have to recognize that it is real and because it's real you need to accept that reality and accept that reality in how you deal with your kids and even how you talk to your kids now this doesn't mean you have conversations with your children that fears them of people that makes them think they have to be careful and that everyone is out to get them. No, that's not going to help them. And that's going to just create a sense of paranoia and distrust that will affect their ability to make relationships and in a way will already 
affect them uh, negatively before anything has even happened. But you do want to talk to your kids from a very young age about things like their autonomy of their body. So from a very young age, to even two, three years old, as soon as you can really communicate with them, you can start to express to them things like, this is your body. And there are parts of your body, for example, that are more private or that only mommy or daddy touches when we're changing you or cleaning you, and that's it. And also, you have the right, because it's your body, to say what feels good or what doesn't feel good or something you want to happen to your body or something you don't want to happen. And that means even things like hugs and kisses from mommy, from daddy, or even other family members. And so this is why actually I try to discourage parents from telling their kids, oh, it's your grandma, it's your aunt, it's this person, go hug them, go kiss them when they don't want to do it. And this is even before COVID where we're, we're avoiding some of those things, but in general, don't put that pressure on them and give them that message that even if you don't want to do something with your body, sometimes you have to do it because a grown-up or someone else is telling you to do it. Let them know. Show them. This is your body. If you don't want something to happen to it, you have all the right to say that and express that. And we're not going to make you feel bad about it and guilt you or, or tell you you're being disrespectful or mean or whatever it is. And even as parents, um, kids are so cute. And of course, you love your kids so much, you want to hug and kiss them. And I can understand that feeling. But be aware of the effect it can have if you're not respecting your child's wish to not be touched or to not be touched in a certain way, even by you. Sometimes parents can have this thought that they essentially own their kids. It's my child. I can kiss him or kiss her however I want or hug them however I want, whenever I want. No, they are their own person. And the more you give them that feeling and that sense and actually that reality in their relationship with you, the more you will teach them that they can be this way with other people. She mentioned something about the caller, and now it's two segments ago, but she shared about having a voice and how so often she, feel like she felt like she doesn't have that voice or it gets stuck in her throat. And that was heartbreaking, and I think it more reinforces this concept that you want to give your child a voice. You're allowed to say you don't like something, especially in the context of your body and what feels good and what doesn't feel good, but about anything. You can disagree with me. You can challenge me. If something doesn't make sense, you're allowed to say it. And this is why I always encourage parents not to become tyrants or dictators in their own home. I'm the mom. I'm the dad. This is what it is. Don't even question it. It's not even good for them in any way, um, but we don't want to give them that message at all. You're allowed to disagree with me. You're allowed to have a different opinion. You're allowed to stand up for yourself and have your own voice. Or another way this comes up is parents will tell me, I want my kid to stand up to the teacher or stand up to people at their school whenever someone does something they don't like. And I'll always ask them, do you feel your child would feel comfortable to stand up to you, to disagree with you, to stand up for themselves if they didn't like what you were doing? And a lot of times when they're being honest, they realize that the answer is no. They don't give their child that right to stand up to them. So how can we think that with us, which hopefully they're more comfortable with, we're their parent and they should have hopefully a good sense of how we feel about them and that, that we're going to love them. How do we expect them to respond in a, a more strong way with someone that they don't know how they're going to respond or that they'll react? So we want to give them that sense that you can disagree with me. And if you don't like something that's happening to you, you always have the right to say that. 
And so as they get older, we can continue these conversations. And I know when I'm saying this, it could sound like it's so many conversations, but I'm talking about over the course of your child's life. So it's not that every day you're lecturing them about this. And hopefully it's not a lecture. It becomes a conversation where they can express things to you and ask you questions. And if you have these conversations in a very comfortable, loving, kind way, it'll let your child know that if they have questions about this, hopefully about anything, but about this type of a topic, they can ask you, oh, you know, grandma hugged me and I didn't like it. Oh, okay, what happened? And we can have a conversation. Oh, she hugged me too tight and it hurt. And then you might explore what to do with that. You talk to grandma, talk to grandma with her in a very loving way. Let's talk about what happened to show them that they have the right to say, I didn't like something that happened. That's good. We get so focused on, oh, don't make grandma upset or disrespect or respect your elders that we don't teach a child to respect themselves, that they have the right to say what feels good and doesn't feel good to them. So we want to have these conversations with our kids and show them that this is really the reality, that they can share with us what's going on, what they're feeling. Talk to them about their bodies. I know for a lot of parents, this feels uncomfortable. It feels like you're even touching this subject of molestation. And that is a part of this conversation that we're trying to make them aware that, you know what, and as they get older, you tell them things like, you know, if someone touches you in a way you don't like, you can always tell, tell mommy or daddy what happened. And this is, of course, just to give them that feeling that you're always there. But unfortunately, very often, people who do touch children and do things in these inappropriate ways will threaten the kids, say, if you tell anyone, I will kill you, kill your parents, do this, do that. So they give these threats and you're letting your child know no matter what happens and no matter what someone tells you, you can always tell us what happened to you anytime. You never have to hide something from us. We're always here and it's always going to be okay if you tell us what happens. Um, but as I was saying, I can understand that as a parent, just having these conversations and that it might be in some way related to child molestation, sexual abuse, and you just don't want to go there at all. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, these things are real. We can't pretend like they're not there. And covering your eyes, closing your eyes to that reality doesn't make it disappear. As is the case with denial in general, which relates to this topic, because as it came up for this caller, unfortunately, very often when someone has the courage, whether they're a child or whether they have repressed the memory and it comes back later, or whether they didn't want to come forward and finally do later, very often they are blamed for what happened. If it's acknowledged, you asked for it, or they're blamed in the sense that people are telling them you're making it up and there is a complete denial. There's no way he would do that. There's no way she would do that. You're making this up. You're trying to get attention. You're trying to create drama and a whole host of other things that they attack the victim in order to maintain this denial that something might have been going on, which is very sad, very unfortunate, but it is a very common reality. Families don't want to have the equilibrium disrupted in this significant way. They don't want to acknowledge that maybe this thing is true that's so horrible. So it's easier just to attack the person who is the victim, which is so sad. So this is something as a parent to be aware of. I don't want to live in denial. If the reality is painful, I'd rather acknowledge that because then I can do something about it rather than pretend like it's not there. Imagine if your child was being hurt in this way and they try to tell you. Of course you don't want it to be true. 
But imagine if it is true and you deny it and they continue to suffer in that way. How horrible is that? Or even if it's not happening anymore, that they're living with this feeling internally. You're not there to help them. Imagine your child is drowning and you're saying, well, I don't want to see my child drown, so I'm not going to look out the window. That's essentially what we're doing. We don't want to see something because it's too painful for us. Or we think it's too painful. So we'd rather avoid it and let our child suffer and maybe even suffer more and suffer worse than they already have because we don't want to acknowledge what might have happened already. So try to be aware of this, that we have a tendency to want to avoid and deny things that can feel too challenging to accept. In a way, it's interesting because as I was mentioning about repressed memories, it's a way of the brain um, trying to protect against these things that might be too painful to acknowledge, an experience that's too painful so we don't even hold on to the memory or we never really got to experience it so it never becomes a memory, but some way we're blocking that. And so in a similar way, sometimes when someone brings up childhood sexual abuse, we do that in, a, in that same way of denying that it's there so we don't even register what's going on. We're trying to just block it from being reality. But we have to be there for our kids and be those protectors and let them know we're not going to run away from danger or from dangerous thoughts or feelings because we are there for them. Uh, so again, I'm very grateful to the caller for sharing her story. I know it was painful. I'm happy that she's in treatment and getting help. Uh, healing from trauma can be a lifelong journey, especially she was sharing she didn't recognize it till uh, recently. So of course, uh, that process is still fresh for her and you, and I wish her all the best. And anyone who's gone through it before, I hope you get help and realize it was not your fault. Unfortunately, children very often make that conclusion that they were somehow guilty or asked for it or it was just them. She even had some of those thoughts that got hurt maybe because they were uniquely bad in some way, but that's not the case. There are unfortunately sometimes people out there who hurt people in different ways and this is one of those ways, not because you are bad, but because they are bad and doing something bad. And so I'm happy that she called to share her story, but also to continue this conversation because one of the ways we can overcome the denial and avoidance is to talk about it. And I hope people will continue these conversations and not shy away from them and not pretend like it's not real because it doesn't go away just by us pretending like it's not real. So that brings me to the end of today's show. Again, no show on Monday because of the Memorial Day holiday. On Wednesday's show, I'll talk about the book of the week, which is Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty. And also, I'll be joined, we're still figuring out the logistics, uh, by my brother, Parham Holakwi, to talk about conspiracy theories. We had him on a couple months ago to talk about something related, but it's becoming so much more present that people are trying to figure out what's going on and you hear so many different ideas and thoughts about things. So I thought it'd be good to have him on to talk about conspiracy theories, some of the things that contribute to different ways of thinking and looking at information and trying to make sense of the world. And so Parham will be joining me on next Wednesday's show. That brings me to the end of today's show. A big thank you to Ghazala again in the studio. I'm at my father's house right now. Um, and so she's there trying to make sure things run as smoothly as possible. So a big thank you again to her in the studio for, for all she does. And thank you to the callers and listeners today as always. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Hope you have a wonderful day.